We're continuing today in our Prologue to the Messiah sermon series. We've been working through uh, the Old Testament and ways in which it proclaims who Jesus is and what he's done. And we're talking about the ways that we can learn more and more about what Christ was going to do from what was proclaimed that came beforehand, right? And today we're going to talk about a specific type of agreement that happened in the Old Testament regularly called a covenant. We're going to discuss covenants and the way in which they show us who Jesus is and what he said he would do. So one thing to know about covenants first, that they are an oath-bound agreement between two parties. That's the basic long and short of it, right? The main thing that distinguishes it between a contract is the fact that usually it has to do with something that will happen long-term, not just a single thing that will occur. Contracts are for like, I would like to sell you three cattle, please. Covenant is like, I bind myself to you for life. They were not single-sided. Covenants were not broken if one party fails. Generally, they were actually kept. One party would bind themselves to keep their end of the covenant regardless of what happens, right? Covenants occurred throughout the Bible, all over the place. And they occurred so often that a lot of theologians actually say that covenants are one of the main ways that God interacts with his people throughout Scripture. They happen all over the place. Here are some examples of covenants that occurred in Scripture. There's a covenant between God and Noah, that God would not destroy the world again. There's the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. There's the covenant between God and Moses and the people of Israel. There's the covenant between God and Aaron and his descendants, the priestly covenant. There's the covenant between God and David and his descendants, that a king would reign forever on David's throne. Then there are covenants between individual people. There's one between David and Jonathan. There's a covenant between Solomon and Hiram, Jacob and Laban, and so many more. Covenants occur all over the place in Scripture. Now, fun things. Covenants would often have a sign that was given as a reminder for what would be occurring, what would have been promised. The rainbow and that's talked about after the flood, that is a sign that people can actually see and say, this covenant is in effect. Just real quick side note. Signs were not things that had to be made up on the spot. They can just say, remember that thing. When you see that thing, remember what I said. Doesn't mean that the first rainbow was at the time of the flood. Rainbows could occur anytime. They became a sign of it, right? But whenever you're thinking of the type of agreement that a covenant is, it's really simple to be like, all right, are we talking like a contract? Are we talking like two parties who just need to make an agreement together? No, generally what you want to think about is something like marriage. Marriage is to be considered a covenant. Both parties agree to unconditionally serve and love the other party, regardless of what occurs in the relationship, basically, right? You can actually juxtapose that with something that often is called a covenant in a church, but I don't really think is, right? Who here has ever seen someone sign like a covenant membership agreement in a church? Yeah, no, that's weird. People do it. I don't like it. That's why we have a stewardship agreement instead of a membership covenant, by the way, because you are not binding yourselves to city church forever if you choose to be a part of it. That's not the same thing as a marriage. But covenants occur throughout Scripture. And they point to different things about who God is and what he's done, right? The Mosaic Covenant points to God and the fact that we are not good enough by ourselves to earn a place with him. And that something drastic has to happen for us to be right before him. Hence the sacrificial system. It's a way for us to be purged and allowed to be close to God, even though we are imperfect people. But it's not a perfect system because it needs to be done regularly. It cannot completely overcome our imperfection. There's the Abrahamic covenant, whenever God actually was speaking to Abraham and he said, you, person, I choose you, I'm going to bless you. 
I will make your name great. You will be a great nation. You will have numerous sons, and they will be greater than the stars in the sky and the sands in the seashore. And I will give you a land that will be yours eternally. And you will bless the entire world through your offspring. Right? Another covenant. A covenant with David, where God straight up says, you, I'm going to place on your throne one of your descendants, and he will reign forever and ever. His reign will never end. One without condition, because this was said to a man who completely chose to ignore God a whole bunch of times. Literally all of these covenants are with people who choose to ignore God a whole bunch of times, right? Abraham lied a bunch, ignored him, tried to push through and make things happen that God said would happen. Moses ignored God at times, did things he wasn't supposed to do. David ignored God a lot, did things he wasn't supposed to do. Aaron messed up, straight up this guy made a new God to worship whenever people were bored and tired. Covenants were made between God and imperfect people, right? And these covenants allowed us to have relation with him, even though we could not deserve it on our own. Two types of covenants were very popular in this day and age in the ancient Near East, in the place where the actual Bible was written. These are covenants that are between, honestly, one is like between a king and a lowly person. And these covenants were generally unconditional. The king says, I've chosen to do this to you. There's nothing you can do to pay me back. What are you going to pay me with? You've got nothing, right? There are also ones between like kings and lesser vassal states, where one person is really powerful, one person is less powerful. And those could be conditional. I will do this for you. I expect you to do this for me. Both type of covenants occur within scripture, especially with God and people. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, there's three different times whenever God actually walks through this covenant with him. Two of the three, no conditions imposed whatsoever, no expectations on Abraham. One of the three, I'm going to ask you to circumcise yourself and other people. Big condition. I'll toss that one in there, right? Abraham was an adult whenever this was happening. Mosaic covenant, hugely conditional, right? You will be my people. I will be your God. I rescued you from Egypt. I will be your God forever. This is what I expect of you. Serve me in this way. Right? Davidic covenant, strangely enough, a little mix of both. Unconditional in that David himself got to see his line carried on forever, but David himself also got to see parts of his line broken because of his own sin. Right? The promise God made was not conditional. The blessing that came from it at times kind of was. <laughs> But all these covenants had some effects on people. We started to relate to God in this sort of contractual basis, right? This way in which we could spend time, where we could practice ways, where we could try and say, if I do this properly, I'm in good standing with him. If I don't do it, I'm not, right? Now, the issue with this becomes, this sort of takes away some stuff between people, right? Because if it's between God and a person, there's one perfect being, and then there's one imperfect being, all right. But then covenants also occur between two people, right? And whenever these covenants would occur between people, they would be agreements that were basically based on this concept of grace and godliness. This is the kind of person I am. This is why you can trust what I'm going to do, and I swear before God I will serve you in this way or care for you in this way. And we see people lie about that too, right? Jacob and Laban had a covenantal agreement that Jacob would marry Rachel, right? Yeah, that Jacob would marry Rachel. Covenant agreement, this is what will occur. Jacob gets married to Leah, her sister, instead. Leah? I like Leah better. I'm going to go with it. Yeah. 
For some reason, that name just rings off my tongue. I don't know why. Uh, thank you. Jacob and Leah. Now, fun story. The covenant was still in effect. He would marry Rebecca. So, lady, you married Rebecca, too. Rachel. Sorry. <laughs> Our names in the Bible, there's like two of them. How am I going to ever get them straight? Right? Rachel, thank you. Sorry. That covenant was through two imperfect people, but the covenant still stood, right? Now, interesting concept. Whenever people would covenant together, they would do something very fun, which is they would share a meal together because the basic concept in a covenant was that these two parties are completely connecting themselves to one another in the same way that you would connect yourself to family. And families share meals together. They eat together, right? Now, they couldn't do that with God for some reason. Dude didn't eat. They would do sacrifices, so they would oftentimes like cut an animal in half, spread it in two different directions. And then as they're finalizing the covenant, Abraham was like supposed to walk between these people, between these animals, not people. Completely different things. They would walk between them, passing through the sacrifice into relationship with the other party, in relationship with God. Right? Fast forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 33. Now, the people of God are suffering under the fact that they did not keep up their end of the conditional Mosaic contract, the conditional Mosaic covenant. They are in captivity in Babylon. They have been removed from the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants, and they are worried because it seems as if the line of the kings would be cut off. Whenever they were removed, one of the kings, there were two tribes at this point that were controlling different parts of what were originally Israel, one Judah and one Israel itself, and whenever one was taken through, their king was literally taken captive, had all of his sons brought out in front of him, had all of his sons murdered in front of him, then had his eyes put out before being taken into captivity. So the last thing he could witness was his line ending, right? It seems like the people of Israel were expecting something, and the hope they were expecting was gone. They had expected to be able to retain this land, and they didn't have it. They were expecting to retain the, the covenant that they had with David, and they didn't see that one happening. They expected to see uh, the priestly class continue to be able to function and serve within the temple, and that didn't happen. They had so many expectations because of the covenants that had come beforehand, and they weren't seeing them at that moment, and it was scary. And Jeremiah, prophesying, began to speak the words of God to them. And this is what was said. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declared the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I forgot to put the next verse in. I'm going to go ahead and pull it up here real quick. Edit. 335. Let's try this again. And finish it off. Off of edit. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. No longer will he remember their sins. He will forgive their wickedness completely. You see, the conditional covenant that was made with Moses said that if you didn't do these things over and over again, your sin is upon you and your guilt is upon you. If you don't sacrifice regularly, if you don't make atonement properly, your sin is on you. This new covenant straight up says that will not occur anymore. You will be wholly forgiven and your sins will no longer be remembered, period. The people of Israel took things like this in scripture and pointed forward to a coming time whenever a Messiah, an anointed one, a person would come, reign on the throne of David, and would make it possible for this new covenant to be ushered in. This new covenant would fully overcome the deficits of the Mosaic covenant, the old system, the sacrificial system. Something would occur that would enable it so that people would not need to partake in that kind of covenantal action anymore. So the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember I said whenever covenants are made between people, they would often institute them with a meal? That's what communion is. The institution of the new covenant that was brought on, that had been foretold ages ago. That one would come who was in the line of David, who would sit upon a throne forever, and Jesus reigns forever right now. His sacrifice overcomes the deficits of the old system. They don't throw it away. Instead, they fulfill it perfectly. He is a perfect sacrifice once and for all, for all sins, for all mankind. One that we don't need to continuously repeat. We can't ever do what he did for us. As Jake likes to point out, the only thing we need to do is accept what he's done. Whenever we share communion together, and if you ever wonder why communion is such a central element to what we at City Church do, why we continuously take communion, no matter else, what else is happening throughout the week, it's because it is a sign of this covenant Christ has made with us that we can remember eternally that Jesus loved us enough to overcome the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of us, and the deficits of the old system so that we could have a relationship with him. He makes it possible through his perfect life, his unnecessary, or I shouldn't say unnecessary, his unearned death, and his glorious resurrection. His death takes away our sins. His life grants us new life. If we know this, and if we remember it, and if we live according to it, we're his. No actual conditions on our part again. It's all on him. All we have to do is say thank you and take it. So I invite you today, if you haven't done so before, recognize what Jesus has done for you. Thank him for what he has done for you and accept the blessing he gives you without condition. That you may be his and know him and have a relationship with him forever. Amen. Jake, I'm going to bring you forward.
Actually, I'm not. What's the next section here? Second hymn is up next. Let's take a moment and pray, and then we're going to sing again together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. Father, we praise you for your blood poured out for us. We thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for the life you lived perfectly so that you could fulfill what we could not fulfill in that Mosaic covenant. We praise you for the fact that you lived in such a way that you could earn righteousness because we could never do it. And we thank you for the fact that you offer that righteousness that you earned to us free of charge. That you've given us what you deserve. That you took upon yourself what we deserve. We praise you for the fact that you have given your life for us. And may we give ours back to you out of gratitude and thanks. We praise you, Jesus.